Welcome to the local podcast. I'm your host, Clay Berkland, Director of Agricultural Banking with Pioneer Bank and Trust. My guest today is Scott Peterson. Scott is a fairly well-known businessman and investor in the Black Hills region. Uh, Scott, welcome to the local podcast. Thank you, Clay. It's an honor to be here. So uh, Scott and I have quite a history together. I'll try to cover the bulk of it within the hour. Uh, I won't tell all the stories, Scott. I don't <laughs> think some are probably fit for public consumption. Uh, but I do hope we have enough time at the end. I can tell everybody about the time I beat you in a foot race. But. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's wind it back to the middle 60s. Tell me about you and Susan's early years and how you ended up in the Black Hills region. Well, thank you, Clay. My wife and I grew up, my wife Susan and I, we grew up in uh, eastern South Dakota. Um, I grew up on a farm and uh, we had some other cows and we fed fat cattle. And so that's what I grew up doing. Oldest of four boys. My wife is actually the youngest of six kids. She grew up, of course, farming right down the road, and then they had a dairy, so she grew up in the dairy. And you guys came to the Belfouche area when? So we moved out here. Susan, when Susan's a couple years younger than me. When she graduated from high school, we moved out here to go to school at BH. And uh, we never, we come here, went to school, and we never went home. Never went home the next summer or anything else. It was home for us right off the get-go. Did you ever look back or just felt no. good and easy from the beginning and you stayed with it? Yep. Yeah, we just, we came here, we made our made our way on our own, and it felt good from the beginning. And we we have never looked back. It's been awesome. So obviously those familiar with you know the bulk of your success centered around uh, the car dealership. Uh, when did you get into that and, and how did it morph into what it became? So when I was, I was always a motorhead, so I was growing up on the farm and we were always tearing stuff apart. Started when we were kids tearing apart the lawnmower and not putting it back together and learning how it went and worked and that kind of thing. Then worked our way up to cars and junk cars and building cars and dragging them down to to uh, the racetrack down in by Sioux Falls and doing a little drag race and then dragging stuff home. And then when I went on to college, I started curbing cars on the side, buy some cars, fix them up, maybe put some chrome wheels on them, that kind of thing, and curbing cars. So when Susan and I moved out to, to uh, Spearfish, we went to work for Doug Luter. Susan was working in the produce department, and Doug was uh, gracious enough to hire me to learn how to cut meat. Had an old boy that was a butcher back then that was a really nice guy and really knew his thing, and so he taught me how to cut meat. And, of course, I was still curbing cars out front. Doug let me get away with that. So uh, that's what we did for a couple years. And, uh, of course, doing that, I was in and out of the car dealerships and that kind of thing, and... One day, the gentleman at that time that owned the Chevy store in Spearfish, I was in there trying to buy a back row beauty, and he kind of offered me a job. And it was one of them things I'd never, never in my life dreamt about being in the car business, never dreamt about being a car salesman or anything else. But he offered me a job. I went home, talked with Susan about it, and, and decided to give it a shot. And I guess I've never looked back since. So I'll interject here a little <clears> bit. Uh, You've told me before, but I'll, I'll bring it on the air. Probably the best business decision you ever made was a gal you married. Is that accurate? <laughs> yeah, that's definitely accurate. Yep. A friend of mine one time says, Hey, Scott, you and I have one thing in common. We're overachievers when it comes to our wives. <laughs> yeah, you did well. Uh, <laughs> Scott and I enjoy several business associates, uh, many of whom uh, resemble your relationship. Uh, Wayne and Tessa Eaton, uh, you know, Dee and Tyler Haugen, Tim and Laura Olson, 
Uh, you, you look at those folks, and there's always a guy with a bunch of ideas and somebody cleaning up the mess behind him. And yep, Susan's lots of that similarities one. <laughs> <laughs> yep, for sure. We as bankers, thank goodness for the uh, the gals cleaning up the mess behind you. Let right. me tell you that yep. for sure. Yep. So we're down here at the stock show today. Uh, you spent the morning watching the boys in the rodeo, is that? Yeah, yeah, the boys were up in slack uh my 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 son john and another young man wade that we count as our own also and uh so john had a pretty good run with his partner they were four seven i think they're sitting fifth um wade didn't have quite as good a run so you gotta team make it through the weekend and get him a little circuit money then yeah, i hope right hopefully so yep yeah so you raised your kids there in belfouche uh grew the dealership over the years and you've expanded into other areas over time could you touch on those for us a little bit well most of the things in my life just like getting into the car dealership or or getting hooked up with my wife back when we were kids are kind of things that just fall in my lap and and have happened so the the car business was kind of the same thing um you know I had uh, Susan and I, 1988, Susan and I got married. We bought our first house that didn't have wheels under it, I always say. And uh, we started on our own in the car business with a little bit of used car lot across the street from Ellis Trip. I knew Ellis Trip, of course, because being a motorhead, I rode snowmobiles and dirt bikes and all that stuff and spent a lot of time in his place. And, and Ellis had kind of took me under his wing, and we got along really well. So he, he set me up. Susan stayed at Looters doing her thing, and, and uh, you know, we started this little car lot. Went from just me, you know, fixing them and cleaning them and selling them and everything else to her being able to quit her job and come on board. And then the first person, that, the first person we hired outside our family in our business was a mechanic, um, partially due to our belief from the very beginning that, uh, you know, we want to sell quality stuff. We want to stand behind what we sold. Once you got the car dealerships up and running, uh, when did you become a badge dealer then in 92? So Roy Lettler owned the new car store in Bell back in those days, the Ford Chrysler store up on the hill, as they say in Belfouche. And uh, so in, in uh, 1991, beginning in 91, Roy shows up at my little used car lot, my little office, and I knew who Roy was, but I didn't really know Roy, not like we went to supper or anything like that. And he comes in, he sits down at the desk, and uh, we talked a little bit, and he says, you know, I want to sell my car store, and I think you're the guy to have it. And so, long story short, Roy had enough vision and belief in Susan and I. He sold us that business on the sleeve or whatever. and, and uh, you Smile know, and good intentions will get yeah, you a lot of places. Exactly. And seen something in us that he believed in, and, and uh, it worked out pretty well, obviously. So then you further expanded operations moving to your buying the place up in Harding County yeah so we we uh we had we'd become friends with Bud and Willow Harrett way back when in the used car lot and uh really got close with them guys we spent a lot of time up helping them ship and brand and that kind of thing and and Bud and Willow were kind of like our West River grandparents and they treated us that way and and vice versa so you know, they come to town, and we had lunch a lot of times and, you know, that kind of thing. And one day, it was the fall of 94, they showed up, and they wanted to take us kids to lunch. They always said, we want to take you kids to lunch. So we went out to lunch and uh, sat across from them, Susan and I, and, and Bud says, we want to sell our ranch, and we want you kids to have it, which, was, of course, caught us completely by surprise. 
So but, you said le- yes, like always. Yeah, yep, exactly. <laughs> and one of the coolest things that I still get a kick out of is I have a file in my desk with a napkin that we made the deal on sitting there in that restaurant. And from there, I know too much information, so I can lead you down some of these stories whether yeah. you like it or not. I believe you started another partnership with a couple running some share cows. It was pretty influential yeah. in your success. Yeah, right. On. Right off the beginning, some dear friends became dear friends of ours. We still think the world of them, Wayne and Susan Nelson. So we had we were running that ranch, didn't have anybody up there. I was running back and forth between the car store and running up there on weekends and nights and stuff. And we, we hooked up with Wayne and Susan and we started running cows together. So we'd run our cows on my place in the summertime and then we'd trail them for a day and a half back to Wayne and Susan's and, uh, Wayne would winter the cows and calve them out and then, of course, circle, come back to our place. And the thing about those folks is I've always said, you know, Wayne Nelson, rather than tell me he lost one of my calves, he would, I think he'd graft one of his own on to not have to tell me that. That's how hard he worked yeah. for me. Once again, uh, good partners make yeah. for good success in business. And yeah. It makes it pretty easy. Yeah. In the lore of Pioneer Bank and Trust is a story about running Buffalo in Harding County, and you were kind of part of getting us started down that path. So when when did you get into the Buffalo industry? <laughs> So Sandy and Jackie Limpert, again, dear friends of ours, Slim Boots Buffalo Ranch. And so, you know, they were customers and they were friends. And so I was a bit intrigued with the buffalo thing and trying to figure out how to run a ranch when I couldn't, you know, afford a hired help or anything and juggle everything myself. And and uh, so I was intrigued by running buffalo because of the calving them. Not, you don't have to, you know, you stay away from the calving their own, that kind of thing. And so in 97, Susan and I actually purchased 100 head of buffalo heifers from Sandy and Jackie Limpert, and uh, that's how we got in the buffalo business. So we slowly phased out of the black cow back then, the black cow thing, into making the jump-off ranch a full-time buffalo ranch. And like everything you do, you couldn't just leave it alone. You had to improve that slightly and got involved with the, the... Use the words for me here, National Buffalo Association? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we, you know, we jump in it. We kind of jump in it all the way. And so we got involved in the, the NBA, as they call it, but the National Bison or Buffalo Association. And, you know, it got us an opportunity to, to rub shoulders with other people in the industry and, and uh, you know, become good friends with, for instance, with Bob from Rocky Mountain Natural Meats, yeah. you know, and, yes, who's, a, who's the packer who buys all our animals, you know, and uh, markets them that way. Um, and so I did my tour of duty, as I say, and served on the board and worked my way through that and and was pretty involved in that till we till we started having kids, and then we started backing away from a little of that stuff. I have to segue for a moment and uh, remind you of the, one of the things you got me into. Uh, had the national or the NBA annual meeting here at the stock show, and uh, you told me I was going to speak at it. And I said, no, I don't do public speaking. And next thing you know, I gave my first public speech on financing Buffalo operations. That was your first public speech. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that, No Scott. wonder you've always had a grudge against me. <laughs> I'm still getting even. This is right. one of those opportunities yep, I'm taking I'm to get even. That's what I'm a little worried about. <laughs> We've had a history of trying to get even with each other. <laughs> As that has grown, now you've 
you mentioned selling stuff to the feeders. You also have a feeding operation there. You want to touch on that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, so we, of course, sometimes my timing's not very good. So in 97, jumped into the buffalo business, and the buffalo business was pretty good. Of course, as we started growing in the 2000s, rolled around, and in 2001, 2002, the buffalo business got really ugly. And uh, I was with Pioneer Bank, and Pioneer Bank stuck with me through them times, which was, you know, I will always be grateful for. But uh, the one thing we stepped back and did, because I grew up feeding cattle, my, my grandfather fed cattle and my dad fed cattle, and so I grew up, you know, feeding cattle from the time I was big enough to drive the tractor and well, I watched a gate to begin with and then drive the tractor and then feed and that kind of stuff. You know, because of that background, I went back to that, and, and Susan and I started a feedlot there at the ranch, and we started feeding buffalo, and that was how we kept ourselves alive through them ugly days, and we still feed buffalo today. We, we feed a bunch for ourselves and we still custom feed also. Now that feeding operation has allowed you to time your marketing and capitalize the, the best rate of return for you just based on pure timing. That's one of the, the keys to any business, right, is being able to hit the market when, it, when it's hot. Yeah, it gives you a lot more opportunity to market when the market is, a, a, instead of being a, a victim of the market, you know, we can be involved in a bit more, feed our way through. It's allowed us, like our home-raised especially, it's allowed us to put a lot more value in our home-raised animals. Even plugging in, I'm a guy that plugs everything in. So when I when I figure what it costs to feed a buffalo all the way to the end, I charge myself 40 cents a day yardage. I charge myself marked up hay, you know, all of that stuff before we plug in what we really netted that calf worth. Yeah. This is your host, Clay Berkland. My guest today is Scott Peterson. Uh, Scott, here's where we start telling stories on each other a little bit. Uh, you've always had a way of challenging me in the, the things we've done together over the years, and sometimes I appreciate it and sometimes I don't, but one thing you've always done is made me question the why of how we're deciding to move forward. And you talked about uh, some of the tougher times with uh, the Buffalo industry. And you know, I, I will always go back to 08 when the housing crisis came and things fell totally apart. Uh, one of the things I appreciated most about you is you were more worried about where we were going th than I was. You, you were there 7.30 Monday morning saying, here's my plan. I don't know if it'll work, but this is my plan. Where, where does that come from? Why do you always, you have a fallback position and then you're aggressively move forward from that? Yeah, that's an interesting thought. You know, my, I guess if I reflect back, my grandparents, my grandparents bought the place that I grew up on from the railroad and broke it up and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And I watched their work ethic and I watched them always have a plan and march ahead and that kind of thing. And, you know, then my, my father come into the operation, went to college, mom and dad did, and dad taught school a year or two after that and then moved home and, and they had us. And, and that's kind of what us boys uh, grew up seeing. And as you know, Clay, I don't operate very well without having a plan to march forward. I don't like, you know, being in the la-la land of, of where are we going to go. Give me a plan and, and we'll march forward. Sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong. And when it's wrong, we readjust. And that's just the way I've lived my life and it works for us. So as you and I have 20 to 24-year-old kids that we're trying to raise to do things right, uh, what advice do you have for them on, on how to make those plans and how do you... I know that's a big open-ended yes. question. Yes, it <laughs> and is. And if you give me the right answer, I'm going to give you my, my kids too on top of yours. Okay, well, <laughs> on the kid thing, you know, my wife and I were engaged two years. We 
We, we actually we dated two years. We were engaged two years. We were married ten before Johnny come along. And part of the reason was we worked day and night back in them days, and just didn't have the time we felt like to to raise a family. So when the time come along, and uh, you know, all you parents out there that are listening to this know exactly what I'm talking about, but. Um, you know, that first scream of that first child is the very second you realize that the rest of your life you're not living for yourself. And uh, it's the most wonderful thing. And uh, I know your history and your three kids also, and I remember the day they were born. Of course, you were down in Denver or whatever, but I remember, you know, remember that and how it changes our lives. Um, we both have raised our kids in the rodeo world. You know, my kids, my kids have spent, you know, all through all through that time in our backyard at the arena with the neighbor kids over and all that kind of thing. And and uh, you know, I, I truly believe that it's one of the last things where you can raise your kids. And we raise in the rodeo world, we raise our kids as a community. We still raise our kids as a community. We're not afraid to discipline each other's kids if need be, you know, and we will sure as hell have each other's kids back yeah. if need be. Very lucky in that regard, and some of the folks we've got to raise our kids around, uh, just quality people that, you know, a lot of life lessons and life values, and they, uh, I don't think any of them are ever going to want for a job because they know, know enough people to go to. They can get work in, inside of 10 minutes pretty easily, and that, that's yeah. a huge reward of growing them up in that lifestyle. So as you transitioned your businesses and they became more mature, uh, the 500-pound elephant in the room we're not talking about, I guess, is you have gotten yourselves out of the dealerships in the last few months. And mind talking on that some, mm -hmm. how, how you reached that decision and where you're going from there? I mean, kind of in the middle there. Most, most people know, you know, we were presented with an opportunity in Sturgis in 2013 to acquire that store. And so we took we took over that store, little little store, 11, 11 employees, something like that. Family owned for a lot of years, and uh, you know that family wanted to stay a family owned kind of business. And so that's how you know they came to Susan and I, and how we ended up acquiring that from the Jacobson family, which are wonderful people, and we will always be indebted to them, also just like Roy Lettler. But anyway, we acquired that store. In July, we took over July 15th of 2013. We knew in our, because uh, I'm a big, big thinker, and we knew, and I knew in my world that I, that wasn't the place for that store to always be because it's pretty small, could find little area. And so my dream was to, uh, you know, move it out of there eventually when we could, when it, when the timing was right. Well, the good Lord had a different plan than, than I did. And, uh, my wife and I went back to my brother's place in Watertown during the Atlas storm. And so the Atlas storm happened and they called me. That was October. So we owned the store for just a couple months, yep. literally. And uh, one of the people called us back there and said, the roof has fallen in on the building. And so we headed our way back. And on the way back, I got on the phone while we were traveling, called people, called my good friend Jim Burgess from Black Hills Harley. And I knew Jim Burgess had a building there. And before we were back to Sioux Falls, I mean, sorry, but before we were back to Sturgis, I had a building lined up for us to move into, you know, and that kind of thing. We got there. Of course, the building was, roof was falling in, and they condemned the building, and uh, kind of the rest is history. So it took us a while to find a place to build a new store, but we opened the new store there. Uh, two years later, actually, it was July of uh 
uh, 15, 15, 17, yeah. 15, yeah, yep. 15, sorry, five years ago. Yep. And uh, so that's how that happened. We moved forward to now. Um, and as you said, the elephant in his room is that Susan and I have sold the stores. We passed it on to the Waring family. And uh, again, it's a family. These stores are remaining family owned. Susan and I are actually staying involved in it. All our people are the same. Our management team is all the same. Paul's coming in, you know, without bringing a big crew or any of that. And, uh, you know, when we, when we talked about doing this, you know, Paul is committed to the things that Scott Peterson Motors has always been committed to, which is supporting our community, supporting youth events, all of that kind of stuff. That's one thing that I do feel obligated to touch on. I think few people really stop and think and appreciate the volume of support you've had for the Northern Hills, uh, you know, the, all the youth rodeos, the professional rodeos, amateur rodeos, but... Now, there's also, because they're segregated, the, the basketball games, the teams, the traveling soccer, traveling basketball, all those things you guys have been exceptionally supportive of over the years, and I have always appreciated that about you so much. Uh, I don't think everyone realizes the volume because they don't go to all those events. Those, those of us that get to see your name on every baseball field, softball field, soccer field, football uniform, uh, but on, on top of that, uh, you and I have set together on like the Purple Pride Board of Directors there in Belfouche, which uh, supports scholarship opportunities for our local students. And uh, I know when I thank you or you and Susan spearheaded that whole whole journey. And I don't do you know how many dollars we've put out in scholarships for local students? I, you know, I don't know that. I, I do know that we, you know, when we originally dreamt that up and, and gathered some people up and got it going, we were hoping to maybe give two, three hundred dollar scholarships to every student out of Belfouche who wanted to go on to secondary education. And we didn't care if that was Farrier School or whatever yeah. it was, but some kind of secondary education. And I know that right off the get go, we've superseded that. Spend seven to eight hundred dollars yeah. a year, and uh, of course, half of it we give to the kids for that, and uh, the other half we give back to the school for needs that they have. Also. And there's a yes. unique lesson in that for the kids that one of the caveats to qualify for that scholarship is you have to spend 10 hours of community service time, and that that is the qualification parameter. If you graduate and have 10 hours of community service time, when you start your second semester of school, whether it be as you say, welding, farrier, to go to school to be an attorney or a doctor, you get the money. And that's, I suppose we've done that for seven, eight, nine years now. I bet it has already. <laughs> time flies. And I think we yep. probably average 25 to 30 students a year over that time. So it has been a lot of money that's gone back into the community. And, and uh, thank you very much again for your guidance and leadership to get us started down that path. I think we have enough fundraisers within the community is something we're going to be able to continue to do for a lot of years going forward. Uh, Economic development is another one of those things that you and I have been heavily involved uh, in. Again, one of those uh -huh. things you volunteered me exactly. for. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. One of those things that both of us take to heart and are very proud of our communities and giving back that way. And, and Clay's right. I showed up at his office, shut the door one day and said, uh, Here's what we're going to do. Yep. Here's, <laughs> here's what we're going to do. There's an opening on the board of economic development, and I'd like you to, to join me in helping. So, and All Clay, I have to do as he always does, as he always has. Has, like like junior high rodeo finals or 
or the Black Hills Roundup or anything he's been involved in, he said, he said, absolutely, let's go. And he's marched right on with a lot of that stuff, too. So from some of the things we did through that, I don't exactly know. Well, let me back up a step. Your dad is a state legislator for how long? You know, he was a legislator in the Senate, and I honestly, uh, 15, 18 years. The thing I admire most about my dad with that, I mean, I admire a lot of stuff about my dad, and I'll, I'll never be the man that my father is. My father's an outstanding man. But, uh, you know, he, he, he had the vision to do that, to try to give back and to be involved. And, and uh, he ran twice and got defeated. And he kept his head up, and he kept marching Came forward. Back again. And that's where some of this comes, I guess, that's bred in me a bit. You know, and the third time he won, and, and then he was pretty much undefeatable after that, yeah. once people figured out who he was and what he represented. Well, he taught the lesson well, because now you've continued on uh, not such a political position, but you sit on the... Uh, it's not the Board of Regents. What's the... Technical Board of Education. Technical Board of Education, of the, yeah. That has yeah, to be the, pretty... It's it's very fun, actually. Yeah. Governor Dugard got a hold of me and pointed me when, when we as South Dakota residents voted to take the technical schools out from under the Board of Regents and have them on their own. And then Governor Dugard started that first board and reached out to me, uh, and and uh, we started that board. I was very excited to be involved in that because I felt like it was my way to influence the biggest number of students in South Dakota to head them down a career path um, and to, to keep them in South Dakota, employed well in South Dakota. So. And that's one of those things where you've, I've watched you put your money where your mouth is. You've helped educate several of your technicians that work in your store that through that methodology yeah right? one of the one of the things that we've had a lot of fun with and have enjoyed and we're always trying to grow people within our organization and uh, you know I've had a program where I will send you through school pay for everything that kind of thing and in return we ask for five years you know employment at our dealership obviously people have said well what kind of contract do you have that kind of thing I'm not a contract guy you know if somebody works for me we're three years through that they get married and they want to move away the last thing I'm going to do is say hey you owe me back X amount of money any idea how many people have gone through that program with you in different level of, of apprenticeships on up I in the 20s I mean yeah. quite a few and not always just kids I mean, one of the few ways adults. to make sure that you get kids to come back to our communities though and not move to Denver, Phoenix, Florida. They, I, I think a lot of people, you know, the, the thing was when you and I were young, everybody said you had to go to college and get out of here or whatever yeah. that might be. Well, you and I didn't take that get out of here thing very serious. And Nobody we else stayed. would take us. So we yeah, exactly. <laughs> come back. Exactly. You know, so we've stayed in South Dakota. We raised our family in South Dakota. I've lived my whole life here, my wife and I, and you and your family have done the same kind of thing. And you know, the thing that I've always said is that, you know, my wife and I have lived the, the American dream, and it's still possible in South Dakota to live the American dream, Wyoming, Montana, the neighbor, you know, but to live the American dream, and it's still the land of opportunity. And uh, the one thing I've, I've said to my people lately is if, if we haven't learned anything again in the last year to year and a half, you know, we should have realized that we need to be extremely grateful for the country we live in, the area we live in, 
the governor that we have, the leadership in our state, you know, the fact that we've been able to make our own decisions, do our own business. I have friends in various parts of the of the U.S. who really had a tough time, and we all know people that in retail and that kind of thing that aren't going to survive this in other parts of the country. So in typical Scott Peterson fashion, uh, you came to me probably, I'm going to say, the 15th of March and said, this deal's getting bad. We need a plan. And I think I said something about, uh, ah, hell, we're in South Dakota. Let's not worry about it. And I could tell by the look in your eye, you knew I was wrong. And you came up with a plan. You had one before anybody else I know did. Um, but still, it impacted dealerships across the nation terribly. It I, did. We had doors locked. We had virtually illegal in some places to open up a door and let a customer inside. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I, I, those of us in South Dakota might find that hard to believe, but you're right. I have one friend in out towards Pennsylvania that, uh, you know, they shut their businesses down. They literally shut down. The cops would come make sure the doors were locked. They would contact you on the Internet and see if you were trying to sell over the Internet and then shut you down or fine you, that kind of thing. So they shut them down completely. You know, and, and talk about scared. You think I was scared. Think about what happened to those folks. I'm your host, Clay Berkland. Uh, my guest again today is Scott Peterson. Uh, I'm going to keep doing this and I have to come up with a fancier stage name for myself. Uh, Johnny Shazam, something cool. I don't know. We'll work on that. Scott and I are leaving for Arizona about 4 o'clock in the morning, so we'll have a whole day to figure out what we're going to do next. Right. Yep. So uh, as you've been able to travel in the last few months, Scott, I'm, I know you're always happy to live where you live, but what have you seen? Uh, what impact are, are you seeing across the country? Uh, sorry, but we do have to talk about the pandemic if we're going to be on the radio in early 2021. Uh, what do you see coming? up next uh, you always have a plan i want to know what it is well i think you know it's been interesting and i've always said to more you know the the one thing about the car business it's afforded susan and i not afforded but we've traveled quite a bit for meetings that oh. kind of stuff and we've been around the country and the first thing i've always said is all the traveling i've done has always again made me appreciate where we come from yeah. you know and this pandemic is is very much the same kind of thing um, it's taught us, I mean, a lot of people, I think you, we're seeing a lot of people looking at the Black Hills. We're looking at South Dakota. They're, they're looking at, you know, we're getting a lot of press or a lot. Of, I can't, you can't go anywhere. It's unbelievable without somebody saying, hey, we love your governor. We love what you got going on there. I'm talking about people from California, yeah. Montana, Arizona. It doesn't matter. And, uh, you know, they're looking at it. The, the, those people that are living in the smashed in the cities on top of each other have been forced to work from home and now they're they're looking at you know why you know if i can work from home why live in a four thousand dollar thousand square foot apartment stacked on top of each other yeah and you know people are are taking a step back and looking at how how we live our lifestyle it's so, a go ahead do you think our winners are enough to chase those people out the undesirables well i think we're going to have a little of both but most of the people that i know that that I talk to that are, have moved here or are moving here or whatever are really like-minded people yeah. that we are I would agree that we're that. just placed in a different spot. Yeah. Do you see it changing our 
local ag economy in terms of what it's going to cost to acquire grass, uh, put pressure on development property that's traditionally been agricultural ground? Yeah, I think, you know, you can see that the local housing market has went crazy, you know, as it has in some other rural areas, you know, nicer rural areas, but like the Black Hills, there's a lot of pressure on that. But ultimately, that'll be good for our economy. As you and I have talked many times, the dollar turns over seven times in our economy. So, you know, that's good for all of us, whether you're directly or indirectly, you will be indirectly affected by it. As far as the, the ag thing itself, you know, I'm I'm optimistic that, you know, we have everything cycles. I've been through cycles and lots of different things. And, you know, I believe we've got a good cycle coming around the corner. You know, I think, you know, next year is going to be better. And the year after that, you know, I think we're, I'm I'm pretty optimistic of the direction we're heading again. You know, the, the pandemic has opened, opened doors for us that, in some different ways, you know, people, you know, of course they, they were buying, you know, they were buying toilet paper, but what was the next thing that was empty? The meat the freezer. Yep. The, you know, whether it was Denver or any place I talked to, that was the next thing, you know. And, and so, as we all know around here, every butcher we know is booked up for the next year. Yep. There's going to be more more people, you know, interested in buying directly from from us, you know, the local producer kind of thing. So, so how do we capitalize on that locally? Any crystal ball there? Keep selling good beef? Uh, yeah, you know, the thing in a down market is it always improves the quality of the animal, too. I mean, whether it's, a, you know, because the, the bottom end stuff gets killed, we all keep the best, yeah. that kind of thing. So when we come out of something like this, our cow herd is better. You know, they're more efficient. You know, we advance that kind of thing. You know, so that plays into our hand here. You know, I think there's going to be, you know, there, there'll be some opportunity to lease some places that'll make sense for guys out there in the country. So as I drive, I get bored. And I listen to other podcasts. I don't just listen to myself. And one of them I was listening to of late was uh, relevant to the horse market. Uh, Steve Frisk, who is one of the auctioneers here at the stock show sales, said one of the reasons the horse market's being driven so much higher this year is people want to return to a Western lifestyle, the, you know, the handshake business agreement, the enjoyment of the outdoors. That horseback activity is something that is naturally socially distanced. We're not playing basketball we're horseback and you know you can do rain cow horse cut team rope barrel race we haven't shut that down very much you i know you guys do sell some performance horses is that you seeing some value in that yeah i think there's more attention to that but i think the number of good horses is not as high as it used to be either bill parker you know who's who's been gone now for a while but many people know who bill parker is his wife jan still runs billings livestock and does a bang up job with it Bill and I did business 20 years ago and had never met each other back when the Buffalo market was not very good. And uh, I was sending potloads of calves to Texas, and Bill was marketing to cutters down there. And I'd send them on the on the arm, you know, and get paid. And so anyway, I knew Bill for a lot you of years. You to find value instead, yep, don't you? <laughs> yep, exactly. I, I knew Bill for a long time, and, you know, he helped mentor my son a little bit. And Anyway, Bill told me, you know, five, six years ago that this horse market quality, good performance horse market was only going to get stronger, and, and he's been right, you know. And I think you're right. There's more and more people looking at our lifestyle, you know, looking at a, at a realizing that the value, a cheap horse is a cheap horse. I've always, I've always said no matter what we're talking about, cheap can be awful expensive. 
Well, we're sneaking up on the end of the hour, and I fear they're going to uh, draw us to a close before we get a chance to share the greatest story of our time together, yeah, which was the Deadwood Trail Half Marathon. Yeah. Do you want to tell your story first? That yes, way I can I finish do. it off yep. and tell the real yep. story after you So done. I showed up at the bank one day, as I do, and walked into Clay's office, and he says, uh, you know, I got... Here's something we need to do, Scott. We need to we need to start running, and we need to run a, a half marathon. There's beer at the end. So yeah, yeah, exactly. So me being somebody who never says, "Well, I'm not going to do that," the next thing I know, you know, Clay and I are, and my wife and a couple other people are training for half marathon and that kind of thing. So Clay and I go, and my wife and we go up to Deadwood Mickelson Marathon, run the half marathon. So we start out, and I'm running with my wife, and, and uh, you know, we had them early watches that kept track of how many, how fast you're running the mile in. And I'm running down there, and I'm just smoking along, and I'm looking at it, and, uh, and the adrenaline and everything that's happening, I'm you running, I'm running seven mile, <laughs> seven minute miles. Now, I never trained at seven minute miles, and I wasn't prepared for that. And so, yes, five miles into it, I thought I was Superman, and then I pulled up lame. <laughs> and when I pulled up lame, like I pulled up lame. So I told my wife, just go. Go so, on without me. Exactly. Go on Save without yourself. me. Save yourself. So, so I'm gimping along and, and, and thinking I'd sure like to find a car to pick me up, but that'd be, you know. Golf cart, bike, anything. Golf cart, anything. So I'm limping along by myself, and here comes Clay catching up. Puffing, puffing. Yep. So, <laughs> but never quitting. So, so Clay kind of takes me, you know, and we start running together, and he doesn't leave me but there. Do we, do we need to... There's a caveat in here, though. Remember, I had a surgical procedure about eight weeks into training uh that kind of put me back a few weeks here. So that's why I was not in perfect condition and running (laughs) seven-minute miles with you guys. So so he picks me up, and we keep going. And and so, you know, I kind of get myself back, adrenaline up a little bit and and covering a little ground, and him and I were doing all right. We can do this. Yep, exactly. Then about two and a half miles before the end of this marathon, Clay comes up, and he's done. Yeah, I can't breathe. I'm going to quit. I'm like, go oh, hold it. We, we haven't went through all we went through for us to quit now. You're going to keep going. So I push him and Thanks, I keep coach. him going. So I keep him going. So we're getting there and, uh, you know, we're both gimping along and things are going pretty good. Now we get about 250 yards from the finish line. And all of a sudden, my dear good friend who helped me, but I helped, takes off in a sprint. I dusted him by 100 yards. I will admit he's faster than I am in a sprint, for damn sure. But what are friends for, right? I'm like, what the heck, man? All I know is the wind picture or the picture at the end of the half marathon has me significantly in front of you with <laughs> yeah. my hands in the air in victory. Right, yeah, exactly. My hands might Saved have been in the posterity. air, but it wasn't victory. <laughs> well, I um, hope this half hour, with one hour podcast has been easier for us to get through than the half marathons we've run together. <laughs> well, yeah. It's been a great few years, Scott. Uh, best of luck to you in the future. I know you'll always do good things, and you'll always be committed to our communities and our region. I very much appreciate that of you. You know, thank you. I'm, I am very excited about the future, what the future holds for myself and my family and you and your family and, and our communities. And, and uh, yeah, things, life is good. Life is great. Well, thanks for your time today, Scott. Uh, this is Clay Berkland with the local podcast. Uh, our guest today has been Scott Peterson. Scott, thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Pioneer Bank and Trust, members FDIC.